When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and it's my great pleasure today to talk to Howard Burton. Howard and I have known each other for years, and he is the host of the Ideas Roadshow, which is a podcast on the NBN. And today we'll be talking about a book that he's written called Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays. I can tell you that Howard has talked to 32 people, uh, experts of many different stripe about covid about how it's impacted our lives, about how we handled it, about what it means for us. Uh, Some of these conversations will be distributed in a special series on the NBN called Pandemic Perspectives on the Ideas Roadshow podcast, but also cross-posted to many other relevant NBN channels. And I hope that you listen to those. And this book came out of Howard's uh, discussions with these 32 people. So, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Marshall. Um, can you begin by telling the audience a, a few words about yourself? Sure. Um, so, I have uh, an academic background, and um, uh, years ago, I wound up um, being involved in building and running an, an institute, a physics institute in Canada, where I'm uh, from originally. Um and, um, we won't hold that against you. No, no. Well, <laughs> it's it's wonderful with Canadians, you know, because no matter what they do, uh, everybody seems to like them. It seems like we have this <laughs> diplomatic community. Well, because, it's just the opposite with Americans. So there you go. Well, it, in a way, it is actually, and it's it's not. Anyway, uh, that's a whole different subject. Yeah. Um, so, and then after that, I uh, I started something called Ideas Roadshow, and the 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 idea behind that was to have an opportunity to engage in a personal way using the advantages of of a spectrum of of digital media to go right to academics in a wide variety of fields who are um, doing interesting stuff and and get them to be able to communicate their ideas and their frustrations and their hopes and their desires and all the rest of that in a way that can be broadly accessible and, um, and, and then package that both using uh, film and audio and, and print form and so forth. So that's what I've been doing for uh, the past decade or so. Thank you. And as I say uh, to the listeners to this, you can find over a hundred actually wonderful conversations that Howard has had with, um, I, I don't, I want to say experts, but that just doesn't have the right ring. People who really know what they're talking about. How about that? on the Ideas Roadshow podcast on the NBN, and I encourage you to listen to those. They're really terrific. So let's turn directly to the book. Uh, Howard, 
why did you decide to interview these 32 people? And what were you hoping to get out of it? Well, it, it was a, a somewhat different story. Um, actually, what I had, uh, just like everybody else, when the pandemic hit, I was taken aback. Uh, I'm not uh, although I have a scientific background, I don't pretend to know anything about biology. And all of a sudden, like everyone, I was forced to grapple with all these biological concepts about which I knew very little. And I was curious. There were all sorts of things that my questions weren't getting answered. And I was I was really confused. Uh, I wanted to get some context. I wanted to try to understand what was happening as we were going into all of these weird situations and I wanted to try to get some answers and I wasn't getting that in any way. I wasn't even getting an opportunity to, to see questions being asked, let alone any answers. Of course, by answers, I don't mean the definitive answer. I know enough about, uh, I guess, scientific processes to know that there aren't the definitive answers and there were a lot of ambiguities and I'm fine with that. But I thought this is an opportunity to really understand aspects of how the immune system works and what's really happening and, and, and epidemiological models and so forth and so on. And I was personally feeling very frustrated by that. So I, then I thought to myself, okay, well, I have now turned uh, from the ideas roadshow experiences to start making films. So let's make a film by talking to, as you mentioned, I, I, I've been talking to all these people who are experts in their field. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I do a film about a physicist discovers the biological world? So I'll go off and I'll talk to all these biological experts about not so much what's happening with COVID, but using that as an opportunity to get an understanding of what's really happening. What do we know? What do we not know about the world of immunology? What are some of the big mysteries out there? How can we actually try to harness this moment that we've all been unceremoniously thrust into and try to learn something about that and try to grapple with it? Because as I started to dig in myself a little bit, I found it really fascinating. And again, I didn't really know very much about it. So I thought, why don't I take this opportunity to make a film like that? And I'll talk to all these people who are specialists in that field. And it was a very funny thing because, um, as you, as you said, I, I have a fair amount of experience doing this in different areas. And most of the people I talk to are experts in fields about which I know nothing. Um, so it's actually quite handy. It's quite easy because I can just lead with my curiosity and so forth. But I was getting almost nobody who was in the biomedical research field to agree to talk to me. <laughs> and I thought, that's really weird. What, what the heck is going on? Um, and it was, re it was a very strange situation. So at first you might think, well, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's really busy. These guys are incredibly busy. And that's understandable. But then I turn on CNN or BBC or, or I'd, I'd pick up a newspaper and there'd be op-eds from these people. So they were clearly willing to be engaged. And for some reason, and I have my own theories, but I don't really know. But for some reason, I found it very, very difficult to engage these people in a broader um, conversation. They just didn't really respond. Now, I knew a few people in the, in the biomedical field writ large. And so I did, between those people who were actually experts and other people, I thought, okay, I can move ahead and do this. But 
there wasn't really enough to focus on. And I was really amused by this whole business of people actually not responding to me. And at the same time, I started to think to myself, well, that's all very well and good, understanding biological details, where the frontiers of biology are, trying to understand some of these interesting issues with the, um, with the immune system and so forth. But obviously, COVID is bigger than biology. It includes biology, but there are all sorts of political ramifications. There's sociological ramifications. There's a question of values that we have in society. There's a sense of internationalism. There are all these bigger questions. So why don't I make the ambit of the film much larger and think about using COVID as an opportunity to um, to exploring all of these issues with a plethora of experts in different areas and try to make a film about that, which different insights. Now, of course, when I say make a film, given the fact that um, this occurred during a period where people in different parts of the world were going in and out of quarantine and confinements and different variants were coming up, um, obviously you couldn't film in the normal way where you just go and set up cameras and, and film people. So this filming had to be done remotely. But over time, I was able to actually get, thankfully, quite a few people in a large variety of different areas, some of which were definitely biomedical, but certainly not only, to give their views. And then as I started thinking more and more about it, um, I... Uh, the, the project broadened a little bit more. So what I started thinking I would do with the film is have a wide variety of different perspectives, which is why it's called Pandemic Perspectives. I'm not somebody who is interested in making films that are opinion pieces. Um, that's not to say that I think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's just not my thing. I'm not interested in actually giving an opinion through, uh, through film. What I think... In, in the sorts of media, uh, sorts of topics that I'm interested in, what I think are really interesting is to try to use film to give different, different perspectives on things, different people, different experts, to show that things are much more complicated. There's no canonical answer. People have different interpretations and different views, and you can do that very easily in a in in, in cinema and film. So that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in doing. Um, and I'd like to keep my opinions out of things as much as possible. So then I thought to myself, well, what might be interesting is to do to expand the project in three ways. You have a film with short insights that are hopefully pointed and thematically constructed to give people a spectrum of different views and angles. Then you have uh, longer format conversations that I would put in a podcast form to be able to explore those ideas in more detail. So people have more than two minutes or whatever, and you can ask them questions when you said X, what did you really mean? And how does this fit into that? And so forth and so on. And then the third component would be um, my own personal journey, my own sense of how my own opinions evolved, a behind the scenes view, if you will, of how the project was put together, my own experiences and what my biases were and, and so forth. Because as I said, I like to kind of keep that stuff out of a film. So I thought that might be interesting for people to have those three different components. And, um, and so that's what I did. It, it, I'm envious because you got to talk to these people and, and, and I did not. I learned everything that I know about COVID by watching the news or listening to the news or <laughs> occasionally I would go read an article or something. Um, well, one of the things that struck me about COVID is, first of all, how little I knew about epidemiology and viruses. Um, I, 
you know, for example, when the word vaccine was proffered, I thought, oh, this is something you take and then you won't get the disease. Polio, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that's what most Americans thought. And then much to my shock, I learned that wasn't true yeah. <laughs> about vaccines. Um, yeah. And I think many people were misled in that way. Um, and maybe you could begin by talking a little bit about that, about vaccines, how they're developed, what you learned about how they're developed. And uh, it's, uh, we, you know, we, we can probably go into mRNA and we could even, if you like, talk about the labs where these things are constructed. That's a political football. Um, but what, what kind of light did the people that you interviewed shed on the science of creating vaccines? Well, I guess I'd, I'd preface my comments by saying, uh, and this is going to maybe be a theme throughout this conversation, but it's not just Americans. So I know you like to pick on Americans and I like to pick on Canadians and we all like to pick on people <laughs> that we're familiar with. But I think that's a very common misunderstanding um, uh, or lack of understanding or lack of proper understanding that everybody has who's not knowledgeable about the material. And part of the main meta issue, and, and as you know from our previous conversations, um, one of the things that frustrates me is that people don't acknowledge that they don't know and embrace that as an opportunity, just out of a sheer sense of curiosity. Obviously, nobody wants to be in a pandemic. Nobody wants to be facing a lockdown. Nobody wants to be in that sort of circumstance. Nobody wants to be having to worry about whether the person they pass on the street is going to infect them with something and so forth. I mean, that's obviously to be avoided at all costs. But having found ourselves in that situation, isn't it worth taking some time and saying, well, what actually works? How how do vaccines work in general? What what is um, what is going on with these particular special type of vaccines? I mean, I think there are interesting lessons about what is happening in the world of biology that is potentially transformative that we can take away. And I think this whole question of everybody throws around mRNA vaccine now, like everybody's a, you know, a vaccinologist or a virologist <laughs> now, we all throw these words around, but that's a far cry from having the slightest understanding of what's actually going on or having the slightest awareness that we don't have the slightest understanding of what's going on. I mean, knowing the words, knowing the names for something, Feynman famously, Feynman said all sorts of things. And in fact, many of the things Feynman said he didn't actually say, but he did say <laughs> that, uh, you know, knowing the name for something is not the same as actually understanding how it works. And I think that's a very common affliction uh, that, that, it, that perhaps existed always, but certainly exists in this day and age when we get used to names and we think that we understand what's, what's happening. So, um, so yes, uh, just because you are vaccinated doesn't mean that you are not necessarily going to obviously get the pathogen inside of you. You're trying to boost your uh, uh, you're trying to boost your immune system in such a way that it can deal with the pathogen should it come inside of you. But rather than me pretending to be a biologist, which is a very laughable state of affairs, <laughs> I can I can try to chart my own evolution. So what I write about in the book is when I when I was first thrust into this, like everybody in early 2022, my first reaction was to pick up books by uh, an, um, a very um, celebrated writer and doctor and hospital administrator of his day called Lewis Thomas, mm -hmm. who was American, incidentally, um, 
And because I vaguely remembered having read books by him about biology and the biological world that I found fascinating. He died in 1993. And I thought, I need some help to try to get some sense of things. And that was my first reaction. And I was amazed when I started going through these books. I had a couple of them, and I subsequently ordered the rest because, um, thankfully, one of the things you could do during a pandemic is order books. Um, and and he was uh, it was remarkable to me, even though I had expected that it would be so out of date and it would be not terribly relevant to our present age and so forth. And I found anything but. It was just a fascinating series of insights of somebody who was asking questions, not only to understand what we know, but more significantly, and this is a theme that came out over and over and over again in the conversations that I had with people, about how the scientific process is the thing that we have to be concerned about, which involves not knowing, which involves a frank recognition of when we when we comprehend something or when we have a model for something or when we, or when we have some measure of confidence in something and when we don't. Um, so anyway, so I grappled, so I was led into this whole process on a personal level through Lewis Thomas, which is one of the reasons why that the book, um, is constantly invoking him because I found much to my surprise that as I proceeded through my investigations, I kept coming back to insights that he had, whether it was biological insights whether it was insights about uh, authority figures, whether it was insights about the distinction between the medical world and the, and the, and the world of biological research, whether it was um, notions of uh, how we make decisions and administration, whether it was notions of values on a societal level. Time after time after time, things broadened and they broadened through actually this particular individual. And I found that was an interesting resonance. I think one of the things that, I learned uh, during the pandemic is how much we don't know about yeah. these biological processes. Another thing that I learned that quite surprised me was a kind of fundamental principle of public health communication. And if I get this right, and I may not, and I encourage the listeners to tell me I didn't, uh, essentially it's you pick a message and then you do not depart from that message. Yeah. You say this message over and over again. And even when it's kind of, in some cases, demonstrably not true, yeah. you keep saying it in the interest of saving more lives. And I think many people found this frustrating yeah. because they kept telling us to do things. And then the facts, which I'm sure scientists could have predicted, like, well, we really don't know. The public health officials would say, oh, well, you have to do this. Yeah, there's a really, there's a really important tension there. And I'm, I'm often quite in the book, not, not in the, again, in the film, I don't have any opinions. My job is to present the opinions of other people or so I perceive it. Uh, some of the podcasts, I voice some of my opinions, but, uh, you know, because I, I can't help myself. It's a congenital defect, but, uh, but, but I think, but in the book I can be, I am often very hard on the people who are doing exactly what you are saying, because there's a real tension there. Uh, as I was alluding to before, I think in many ways, the pandemic represented a huge missed opportunity to communicate the process of science. Yeah. And the process of science involves uncertainty. And the process of science involves understanding when you don't know something. And the process of science involves not just declaring in some authoritative way 
what you should do or what you shouldn't do, or sticking to your guns independent of whatever the evidence uh, is like as it comes in or anything like that. And, and I believe very strongly in that, and I think some very grievous mistakes occurred. That being said, uh, I'm not responsible for people's lives. I'm not responsible for public health. And, and were I to be in that situation, I think it would be much more problematic. And so, well, I'm a, uh, as you know, I, I can tend to veer towards the intolerant side of things. Um, sometimes, at least, uh, I, I recognize that this is actually very, very difficult. Um, however, there's an interesting, there's a, so there's a balancing act that has to be done, right? You, you want to be relatively consistent with your public health messaging, because if you, um, if you just tack all over the map, then nobody will listen to you at all anymore. And you're also opening up the door for all sorts of, uh, how shall I put this crazy people to try to say, well, these guys don't know anything. So you should just, uh, you know, uh, let's say ingest bleach, right? I mean, you, 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 uh, <laughs> to, to pick one example. So, so that you do have to be very. It, it's not easy. Uh, one of the uh, to veer towards the more positive. I talked to an individual who was a member of Portuguese Parliament, and he's also a biologist by by training. In fact, he he, he even has a, a degree in physics before them. But anyway, that doesn't really matter. His name is Alexander Quintanilha. And he was describing to me the practices that uh, occurred during the pandemic in Portugal. And it was quite different. And he was pointing out that I think there are real lessons that the Portuguese government uh, instantiated that could and should be absorbed by other people. And I completely agree. What he was saying is that they held weekly meetings with a wide variety of experts. So you would have uh, vaccinologists, you'd have epidemiologists, you'd have members of the government, you'd have uh, mathematicians, statisticians, modelers, a wide variety of people. And these were open to the media. And he said they would be get, looking at all the data from all around the world. And they would be having open and transparent discussions about what could and should be done. And they would be very transparent as well about recognizing when they didn't know something. So he said, we would, we would go up and we would say, we're not sure that this is the right policy. We think that this is the right policy based upon the, the current data. We could be wrong. We might actually have to reverse course in six months or three months or whatever, depending on how things play out. And that notion of both incorporating the fundamental aspects of the scientific process with a, a, a transparent acknowledgement that people were doing their utmost to preserve public health as best as they could have under the circumstances paid some real dividends in terms of the trust that was gained amongst the populace and the willingness of the people to go along with the government policies because it, they weren't just being told these policies. It wasn't just being declarative. They had an opportunity to see how it was formed and they could appreciate the fact that people were legitimately doing the best they could under very trying circumstances to openly and honestly convey what they thought the best solutions would be. Uh, we did not do that in the United States. Oh, very few people did. <laughs> not at I mean, all. And it, didn't happen in, it didn't happen in France that way either. Um, and it, it didn't. It didn't happen. I mean, again, 
I know you'd like to be ranting against the Americans, and I've done my share of that too at some time. But I mean, this is not an American issue. I think there are very few places that had the probity and the transparency and the uh, the integrity to do something like that, because it's not easy, right? It's a lot easier to stand up and say, I am the head of state, or I am the chief medical officer, or I am this, and you should do that. And, and, and for a while, people will do that. And they'll line up and they'll say, oh, great. But in the long term, you're going to encounter the exact sorts of issues that you were describing. I would, yeah, I want to interrupt right there. One of the things, as a historian, I can tell you is that this pandemic is not unprecedented in any way. Uh, we have been dealing with infectious diseases like this essentially forever. They are We live in a soup of things that can damage us, viruses and bacteria and fungi, right. lots of things. And sometimes they burst to the fore and kill tens and hundreds of millions of us. Also, the public health establishment is not new. Uh, it's been around since, I don't know, conservatively the 19th century, trying, you know, state actors trying to deal with these things and thank God for them and their good work. What is unprecedented is an epidemic in the era of social media. And, and, you know, you said in the long term, these people who make kind of blanket universal pronouncements about what you should do are going to be found out to have perhaps exaggerated their, the extent of their epistemic certainty. In our world, it's the short term. Because yeah. the minute that statement comes out, people are on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else saying, this is bullshit. And, and they had to deal with that as well. Yeah. Well, a minute, a minute is now long term, the way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, th- there are all sorts of aspects to this. Uh, I mean, one is, I guess, if you want to be more sanguine, you can say, there's an opportunity to be fact-checking. There's an opportunity. People have the access to information now that they didn't have before in real time. But there's also a desire to be uh, divisive, to be taking any particular issue and politicizing it through these particular tools, to be uh, to be focusing on... How shall I put it? At the risk of sounding too touchy-feely. I want to call it scoring points. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's all about, it's, it's, there's a certain widespread narcissism, right? So every single bloody issue that arises is somehow all about you. It's what you think or how you feel or how it affects your political party or to what extent you feel that you can opine on it. Whereas that goes against the basic idea that most of us don't have a bloody clue about anything. <laughs> and, and we should just shut up most of the time. And that doesn't mean that we should shut up and accept what is being told to us by the experts. I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. It's just that we should say, oh, gosh, I don't really know that. Let's, maybe it interests me to the extent that I'm actually going to be willing to take the opportunity to learn something about it, or maybe it doesn't, but not have an opinion. I mean, you cannot, these people that are, that are willing to, to march on the street against a vaccine, they don't even know what a virus is. I mean, wh- what a what a confoundedly remarkable waste of your time on planet Earth to be doing these kinds of things. It's insane. It's not actually about you. And and so anyway, you've heard me say these sorts of things in other contexts. Um, so, but for me, it was an opportunity to actually learn and to engage with people and these people who had insights, they might have had insights about very different things. Um, 
And, and in fact, one of the things that came out of this process, there were a lot of things that came out of this process that were quite different from what I had expected. And the interesting things didn't actually have very much to do with the pandemic at all. Uh, they had to do with, on the biological side, maybe where is biology going? Where are the frontiers? What does something like the mRNA vaccine actually represent in terms of a potential revolution or one of the potential revolutions in our biological understanding? It has to do with how do we solve problems on an international level? It has a lot more to do with environmental issues in terms of how we structure problem solving and how we can address things. So these were the things that came out that to me were more interesting rather than wading into um, the sort of narcissistic, I'm on, I'm on social media, I'm on Twitter, I'm going to be demonizing this person or demonizing that person. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that was shocking to me was the kind of disconnect between MSNBC and CNN and so on and so forth, who essentially they towed the line. Whatever the public health officials in the United States said, they would, in a, kind of shockingly, encourage people to go get vaccines. All right. That's kind of editorial, I suppose, and maybe it's good sense. But then in the Twitter sphere and on Facebook and these other places, as you say, there was this kind of unbridled criticism of everything the public health officials said. And some of it was good in the sense that they were fact-checking it. But what it did to me was cause cognitive dissonance. I just was like, I already knew I didn't know. But like watching people not know in real time and then have them yell at each other. And, and you know, it, it was just so I, like, what should I do? Who should I believe? I don't know. Should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? Should I get a booster? Should I not get a booster? Should, what, what do I do? And, and uh, you know, I, I was just confused. I, and I don't think there's, I, I mean, there's no easy off-ramp to this problem. I mean, because people didn't know. And, and that's just the fact. They didn't know. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I, I gotta, I'll cite the guy from, from Portugal again and say uh, the, the, the really important missed opportunity was not to focus on the process of science. I guess I, I'm, 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 perhaps I'm paraphrasing, or at least I'm trying to paraphrase what you're saying. It's okay not to know. And moreover, it's not just that it's okay not to know, like, I'm okay, you're okay, or I'm pretending to be some kind of psychotherapist or something. It, it's more than that. It's, that's actually where things, from a scientific perspective, get interesting. Now, I appreciate the fact that if, if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're worried about the, the health and welfare of yourself and loved ones and you you're tired of being locked in your apartment, then you're not necessarily motivated to thinking, now's my chance to explore the interesting, fascinating details about the biological <laughs> world. I get that. But, um, and I certainly, you know, felt that myself. But at the same time, it is an opportunity to sort of look back and say, okay, it's not like these people are gods and they are authority figures. It's, it, and we shouldn't be led into thinking that just because somebody is X or Y or making pronouncements, we, we should be able to go beyond that. And we should be able to look at this in such a way as to not just be go to the other extreme and then say, you know, I'm going to be critical of anybody or I'm going to be skeptical of anybody or I'm going to necessarily assume that anyone who doesn't belong to my political party or belong to this or that is telling a lie or any sort of nonsense like that. But I think to really recognize the fact that 
not knowing is part of the process. On the other hand, there are some things we do know and we have some confidence. I mean, that's the other side of the coin, right? If you come across as some all-knowing, omniscient authority figure, then um, not only is it the case that you're going to get blowback when it turns out that one of the things that you pronounced upon turns out to be incorrect, but it it, it also... Um, it might make people who are skeptically inclined to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, yeah. we just don't know anything. You know, we don't know a damn thing at all. And that's also wrong. It's very wrong. So the inability to distinguish between what we actually have a high degree of confidence in and what we have no confidence in or little confidence in is, is, uh, is really essential. And obscuring that line becomes deeply problematic in all sorts of ways that, that certainly include but very much transcend the pandemic itself. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I'm reminded that one of the best classes I ever took in terms of the workings of my life was uh, descriptive statistics. <laughs> <laughs> not, I didn't expect Not even that, the really right? complicated kind. <laughs> not even correlation. I did that later. But like just descriptive statistics and confidence yeah. in, in what you're saying. Uh, and, and I feel like there was a tremendous amount of kind of statistical ignorance out there um, and people preyed on it. And, you know, one of the things that does, I, this is somewhat editorial and maybe controversial, but I, I got the sense that the public health officials, at least in the United States, were exaggerating the impact of mm. COVID on many cohorts in the population. Uh, and that I saw this amplified a lot. I mean, when, I, when it first came out, I thought, geez, maybe I could die. And then I realized it was very low. Or my children, like, there's just like, the statistics are pretty clear. They're pretty safe with this. I mean, yeah. they might get sick. And of course, they might kill someone with three or four pre-existing conditions. That's true. Uh, it seems to be a statistics bear that out. And we should protect those people, definitely. But this tendency to, and I think the public health officials did this, to exaggerate the harm that come, comes of COVID was something that, that many people bridled against. And, and it's something it's, it had kind of to do with a question of American liberty. Like you should be deciding what's best for you. You should look at that, you know, and people made fun of this on Twitter and everywhere else. I did my own research. Yeah. I, it, that was kind of disgusting to me because I think we should encourage people to do their own research. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the kind of, yeah, it was, I, well, I, I really the, felt like I'd been sold a false bill of goods. Well, there's, there's a, there's an interesting point associated with your comment that I think is not often made and was made by several people I spoke to, and some comments were explicitly incorporated in the film as well. And that is that, while it's true what you say statistically, it's true that there was a very clearly identified at-risk population statistically. That doesn't mean, of course, that because it's statistical, right? So there are you, you can have there are twenty year olds who have died and so yeah, forth and yeah. so on. So right. no no one's denying that. But there there was a very very well established statistical uh, uh, pattern uh, indicators in terms of the people who were at risk. Now that alone I think is sort of interesting from a biological perspective. But let's forget about that, and let's just focus on the fact that um, we did from a very from the onset of the pandemic, we had a, a very clear sense of who the people were who were most vulnerable. I remember this well, like the Italian data. When the Italians yeah. released that data very early, I was like, oh, so, I see. <laughs> so we, 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 did, we did know that. And then there are all sorts of 
you know, political aspects of that that we can get into later. But the point that I wanted to make is that if you have people who are approaching a situation with only one particular criterion in mind, I mean, and, and it's understandable in its own way. Again, I'm not trying to demonize these people, but if you have people who come from the position of, uh, uh, we're just trying to we're trying to minimize. This is a pathogen. I'm a virologist or I'm an epidemiologist who's focused on this particular thing. We have to minimize contagion. That's the only single variable that they're focused on. Then even the policies to limit that might wind up having significantly deleterious impact on a much wider group of people. And so I talked to people who were saying, "Look." Um, you're talking about how, so there was a, uh, there was somebody who's a, a, a philosopher and also a cognitive scientist now. Her name is Anne-Sophie Barwich. She wrote a book called Smellosophy, and, uh, mm-hmm. which yeah, you we had her heard. Um, and she was pointing out that while people were saying trust to science, and they were, which is a whole other ball of wax, and they were saying we're doing science-based policies or evidence-based policies, they were only doing that within a very circumscribed domain of what was scientific. There was all this cognitive science research that showed that human beings, if they are put in isolation, actually suffer mm-hmm. grievously. And that was completely ignored. And another a psychologist, a social psychologist, Roy Baumeister, pointed out to me that um, that much that quite a bit of there's quite a bit of data to support the claim that um, that there were grievous health impacts, uh, both in terms of psychological health, but also physical health, the death rate actually went up substantially amongst younger people because of the efforts, because of, not the efforts, that's the wrong word, because of the measures that were imposed to to try to battle the pandemic. And so the quarantine and the lockdown and the confinement measures actually had a huge impact on people's uh, lives and health and welfare. And so th- uh, it, it's it's difficult, and of course hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm not trying to trivialize it. But the point is, it's not just that you can say, "Well, we didn't necessarily significantly orient ourselves towards these risk factors." If you impose uh, policies that are well intentioned in order to minimize those risk factors, but in the meantime, the health and welfare is is deleteriously influenced of the wider segment of the population, you know, what are you actually accomplishing? If the death rate is going up all over the place, then presumably you're not actually achieving what it is that you wanted to achieve by implementing those policies to begin with. And so it's, it's tricky and I'm not trying to make it seem like it's, it's obvious or trivial, but it's, it is obvious that you have to look at things from the perspective of more than one variable. You have to look at the bigger picture. It's interesting. I was talking to a fellow the other day and he said, well, Public health. It's great that we have a public health establishment. So let's ask ourselves, are Americans more or less healthy than they were 50 years ago? And he said, the answer is less because an incredible number of them are obese. That's a public health problem. Now, of course, being an American, I think you should be able to eat all of the double cheeseburgers and French fries you want. (laughs) But that runs against this notion that we should be trying to teach people to be more healthy because one of the principal comorbidities in covid is obesity. And I think something yeah. like, I'm sure I'll get this wrong, 30% of adult Americans are in some way obese. Um, so seeing it in the round, seeing all of these factors is a very important thing. I mean, I, 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 I'm I, pretty open about this. I've been part of the um, 
recovery community, let's put it that way, for over 20 years. And I can tell you that uh, the measures that were taken did not help people who are alcoholics and drug addicts. First of all, the meetings were closed. Yeah. And those meetings are lifelines for those people. Yeah. And I think if you look at the statistics, again, I could be wrong, the opioid epidemic in the United States got worse. Now, of course, it was getting worse already. So we, we can't disentangle the factor of COVID, but it got worse. It didn't get yeah. better. We wanted to get better. Um, so, you know, to, to give another example, uh, recently the school board in my district voted to continue having uh, K through 12 kids. I have three of them wear masks in schools. And they said, we're deferring to the health board. I said, okay, that's fine. They're the experts they know. But I asked myself, what impact is it having on K through 12 kids to wear masks all the time in schools? When in the general community, that is in Northampton where I live, nobody's wearing a mask anymore. I mean, the mask mandates are gone. So you put it on to go into school. What signal does that send? Do we have any evidence about what's going on there? What message are we sending them by telling them, to wear masks in schools. Now, also, I mean, we have the statistics and the rate of people getting COVID in these schools is incredibly low now. That doesn't mean you can't go back up and maybe wearing a mask is the right thing, but they're being sent a message. And I don't know what the impact of that message is. When you tell kids, okay, you're going to stay out of school for a year, which is what happens here in the United States. What message are you sending them about school? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you you can't help but escape the conclusion that things are being done arbitrarily and not rigorously. And once you start thinking, as you said, if you had the the belief, the trust, the confidence based upon past experience and some awareness of how decisions are being made today, that decisions were being made in in an open and transparent and well-informed way with full awareness of the data and the evidence and the concerns of various people and looking at all of the situations that are relevant to the circumstance, then you might say, okay, but given what you're saying, and given my personal experiences, we don't have that. No. So the, the instinct is, you know, these guys are just throwing a dart at a wall. They, don't, they, they haven't thought about it. They haven't gone through it. They haven't, uh, they haven't tried to consider the various different options. They're just making declarative statements. And that's exactly what you don't want to be doing, not only first and foremost for public health, but this whole idea of letting people know about what not just the scientific method is, but any reasonable way to make a decision about anything. I mean, it, it, it might not have anything to do with science. People, This is another one of my hobby horses, right? People con- conflate evidence-based with science. Like if you're a historian, you don't give a damn about evidence, right? Or if you're I a lawyer- I hate this expression, evidence-based. You, I hate it. And and it's it's, I mean, what what else is there? Is yeah, there non evidence based? Like, what is else there... is there? You just make shit up. <laughs> like it's completely superfluous. Yeah. Evidence based. Like no, I just make shit up. Yeah. So it's it's this idea that you know s- the scientists do things or are supposed to do things in this way, and the rest of it's it's complete. I mean, it's to me, it's just rational or irrational, right? And 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 part of being rational is not only moving ahead in a in a non. In, in some sort of deductive framework, but recognizing objectively what works, what doesn't work, having a little bit of candor and honesty to be able to incorporate that in your decision procedure and so forth. I don't think, yes, that's certainly part and parcel of science or should be, although I've certainly known scientists who don't subscribe to it, but um, but it's not exclusively scientific. It's just thinking clearly. Yeah, it's the I sort of thing you that you're supposed that, yeah. to be exposed to, at least in school, 
whether yeah. or not you're wearing a mask at the same time. I agree with you. Let's talk a little bit about masks for a second, because you mentioned, yeah, it'd be nice to have scientific consensus on these issues so that even you could go do your own research or you could listen to Anthony Fauci or whomever. And God love these public health officials. They're all well-intentioned and, 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 and they, I mean, we can't tell yet, but maybe they did a great job. It could have been much worse. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Uh, but the, the data in studies about masks is just profoundly contradictory. Yeah. And I guess what that means is it's hard to run a study about masks. Well, I, I again, uh, I don't know. Um, one of the things that personally frustrated me, which is something I can say, is uh, that there were a lot of very strong opinions that were coming out of the scientific community in the absence of data. So that's the thing that drove me crazy. So in the very beginning, I don't know if you remember this, but in the very beginning, the World Health Organization made this big declarative statement that said, uh, you don't have to wear a mask or you shouldn't well. wear a mask. Um, and, and I understand that that statement, or at least I suspect that that statement was also made in a different context because this was at a time when people... PPE was scarce and that people yep. were worried that the that, that medical staff and hospitals wouldn't have wouldn't access to masks yep. and so forth and so on. So, so there, might, there may have been a lot more that went behind that. But nonetheless, to be making these announcements in March of 2020, when you don't have very much idea at all about the transmissibility of the pathogen or, or, or whether it's airborne or whether it's not airborne or how it goes through here and there and all the rest of that. And then just to say, as, as an international agency, which the entire world is looking to for some sort of probity and reasonableness and evidence-supported research to just make a declarative statement and then uh, without anything, and then turn around like two months later and say the exact opposite again without anything and expect that yeah. everyone's just going to automatically listen to you is, is infuriating and obviously significantly impugns anybody's respect for the scientific process, or at least what's alleged to be the scientific process. I mean, uh, one, one other thing I can say is that I was very irritated on a personal level by, um, I guess that's the only way I could be irritated, uh, by, by the fact that there, there weren't published studies. I remember asking myself, like, where are the studies? Like, what, what, what do we actually know about masks? How come masks are bad one day and they're good one day and they're bad another day and yeah. so forth and so on? What, what do we actually know about this? And it might be very complicated and it might be very difficult to establish what our, our confidence intervals are. And it might be this and it might be that. But just tell me that. Like, give, give me a sense of, of where things are actually going. And this was happening time and time and time again. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but when the vaccines were coming out, um, there were and, and the vaccines are, you know, it's 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 phenomenal what, what actually was able to be done on such a short it, time it period. Yes, yeah, so let's give um, those people credit. And 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 then there were, you know, there were there was a Chinese vaccine, the Sino, I think it was Sinopharm vaccine, and there was the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine, and these vaccines were actually being being injected into people's arms and nobody talked about them in the Western. It was just like, Oh yeah, well those guys, you know, they're putting, I don't know, sugar and water or something in a needle and they're, they're giving it to, some, I mean, there was no sense of, of what's actually happening. There was this dismissive notion that, well, you know, the Chinese and the Russians, they'll just do anything. Um, and which is, which is so offensive in so many different yeah. ways. I mean, first of all, science is of course, completely international. And the idea that there are no, uh, vaccinologists or, 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 you know, molecular biologists or immunologists or people of merit who are living in, in Russia or China or what have you is just absurd. Um, 
and it, it's it's also a, a sense that that in our information everything is politicized, even whether it's subtly or overt. There's always this sense of of things necessarily having this divisive choose your camp politicization. Uh, uh, side to them. And, you know, the merits of a particular vaccine should not be one of those things. Mm-mm. And and it was. It was all kind of lumped up together. Um, and and so th- these were things that were, that were, I don't know, you didn't ask me what was particularly bothering me. So there you go. You, you have a conversation with me, ask me some question, and before you know it, I'm out on a rant on something. Well, I mean, right I can but. tell you that I basically did whatever Anthony Fauci said. I, I, I'm relatively trusting of authorities, especially public health authorities, uh, but I didn't do it with great confidence or comfort. And that bothered me. I mm. thought, is this just some sort of charade? Do we really know? I did what they said, and I think most Americans did, but I, I didn't feel at the end of it like I had great confidence in them because there was all this contradictory information and not just from the Twitter sphere. It was them saying X and then saying Y and making claims, which I could see from my own experience were not true. I mean, to give an example, when all my friends in New York who are a bit like me, they're part of the international intelligentsia and they'd been vaccinated a couple of times and they'd done everything right, just like I had, then they all got Omicron. They were dispirited. (laughs) Now, maybe they had a tremendously naive understanding of the way vaccines work. But when they all got Omicron, even those people were very dispirited because they felt like they'd been sold a bill of goods, even though they really hadn't. But they were they were they lost confidence in authorities. Yeah. You can understand how this would happen and how that can be dangerous. I think another point that uh, that's worth mentioning, uh, which also got I think elided during the pandemic, understandably so is that biology is not medicine. And we're all worried about our, our health. We all want to be in good health. And we all want to live forever and all that. And that's obviously a, a primary concern. But there are some interesting aspects to shedding a light on the biological world and our understanding of the biological world in terms of not just biology for its own sake, but in terms of how our understanding of medicine will be transformed in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years that really came to light during the pandemic. And another concern that I have is that also just gets rolled up with all of this trust and distrust and and all the rest of that. I mean, there you, you alluded to the mRNA vaccines. I think it's important to have some understanding of what what is represented in terms of to what extent we are actually going through a revolution in biology because of the mRNA vaccines that have a lot more long-term impact than whether or not this particular vaccine will work against this particular virus or variant of the virus and to what extent and to what your symptoms will necessarily be. I mean, that's obviously what we care about, but there's a way of immediately understanding the implications of this in terms of how we might be able to successfully treat a huge monopoly of different conditions and diseases and understanding in the years ahead. And that's a story which, unfortunately, well, I'm in no position to make an assessment, but I suspect a lot of that has been lost. And it's very powerful and in many ways very inspirational. 
And just as a way of getting an understanding of what what we've learned and what the future impact will be, rather than just do we trust this guy or do we trust that guy or is this guy too much in love with being an authority figure or are, uh, you know is it a threat to our freedoms and liberties and so forth and so on? I, I agree with you. I think that uh, I, I thought that the rapidity with which the mRNA vaccines were spun up and distributed to now hundreds of millions of people it is a remarkable testament both to the scientific community and modern logistics. I mean, it's incredible that we were able yeah. to do this so fast and, and, and really wonderful. I think I often think what would we have done during the, I mean, again, I'm not taking sides, but what would we have done during the pandemic without Amazon? <laughs> like, wow, that really came at the right time. I mean, yeah. I'm a big fan of mainstream and then local bookstore and everything else, but that was a, a real lifesaver, you know, being able oh, to have no things to I mean, there's, there, there's that. I mean, there's the communications technology. What if it would have happened before the internet, let alone right. before Zoom and before the ways that people could have been... I mean, the, the social cost of being isolated would have been millions times. Yeah. It was bad enough. I agree. But imagine being in a situation when all you would have had was a phone call yeah. with somebody. You wouldn't have been able to see anybody. You wouldn't have been able to get any access to information. Yeah. No, I agree with you completely. I, I, we've taken up a lot of your time. And I want to ask one other question. And this is something that shocked me during the pandemic. And I don't know if you talked to anyone who discussed this. But one of the things I discovered is that American doctors, at least, actually have some pretty severe limits on how they can treat their patients. And I'm thinking about the uh, wave of interest in repurposed drugs mm. that many medical providers, usually people on the ground, doctors treating people, were touting as effective. Um, and, and what I was shocked by and a little bit disturbed by was that the FDA, and maybe it wasn't the FDA, told these doctors who are working with people that they know in the communities not to use these drugs. And I, I, I was really, I thought that American doctors had pretty much carte blanche to treat their patients in the way they thought best. It turns out this is not true. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but I, 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 I was shocked by it. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole can of worms about which I don't know very much, but um, because you've got, Obviously, the all sorts of different agendas in the pharmaceutical companies uh, and big pharma. I mean, you mentioned the opioid crisis. That's obviously something which is justifiably uh, in the consciousness of of almost all Americans right now. Not just Americans, but certainly primarily Americans. Um, and when you start talking about trust and medical issues and the right way forwards. It is a very turbulent world. There's no, there's no question about that. One of the things that I was keen to pick up on, which is related to this, but I'm not sure it's directly related, is the extent to which doctors are scientific. I mean, there, there is this general sense that when people say science and or even biomedical, even that word biomedical, there's this implication that it covers everyone from tip to tail, right? That whether, whether you're, you're somebody who's doing uh, evolutionary genomics or whether you're somebody who's coming out with a vaccine or in a lab or doing a drug or something, you're all part of the same thing. Well, it's actually much more complicated than that. 
and or whether you're somebody who's prescribing a drug and for and what is influencing you to prescribe a drug or prescribe a certain type of treatment and there is in my experience a wide variety of levels of scientificness um, as you as you examine that whole area in detail and a lot of it has to do with the issues that we were saying before which has to do with notion of authority trusting authority being a member of a community doing what you're told and doing what you're told by people who are of influence and whether they're of influence because they're of influence for financial reasons or whether they're of influence because of uh, government structured reasons or combinations thereof. This also has huge ramifications in terms of the nature of research, what gets funded, what doesn't get funded, how we move forwards to try to, uh, to develop various different drugs who's behind that. And sometimes it doesn't have to be nefarious or, or imagining that there, uh, there is some sort of uh, you know, conspiracy that's afoot. Um, there is this whole question about even if you're interested in having the best kind of drugs tomorrow, what's the best way of funding that system? What's the best way of encouraging that? What's the best sort of research to making sure that we have the transformative drugs tomorrow? And a lot of people I talked to were worried that things would tilt towards a vastly more applied orientation, that there wouldn't be enough funding mm. of basic research because everybody's just focused on getting a pill, getting a vaccine, getting this, getting that. And, and there was a tremendously large impetus that was added to that already existing predilection because of the pandemic. And the truth is that even if you're interested in, in just applied things at the end of the day, Anybody who's looked at this with any degree of sophistication whatsoever knows the best way to actually do that is to make sure you, that you have a solid support of basic research, not targeted specific research, mm -hmm. because statistically that has opened up hugely transformative developments that have spun across a wide number of fields and have been game changers. And if you focus very, very narrowly on what it is that you're trying to do, um, and even if you do so with the best of all possible intentions, even if you eliminate, which you can't do, of course, if you eliminate corporate incentives or what have you, or big pharma or any of that, which you can't do, but even if you could, you still have to be thinking about what is the best way to actually do research in such a way that it will give rise to the greatest number of most efficacious and transformative drugs. And that inevitably involves thinking a little bit more broadly and having a basic research orientation. So that issue also came out very much in what I was doing. Yeah. I don't want to say that I think that doctors should have carte blanche to treat their patients any way they want. We want to be aware of any sort of quackery and I want my doctors mm. to keep up. That's true. But I was astounded that the FDA could tell them not to pursue certain treatments that they thought might be efficacious for their patients. And again, I don't know the answer to this question. As I said, I was just surprised. I do yeah. agree with you about fundamental research. In terms of return on investment, uh, it, it clearly is worth the money. I mean, we, we are, we live a lot longer. We live more healthy lives despite our obesity than we did. And this is all because of essentially investment in fundamental research in biology and biomedicine. And we can, if we continue to fund it as we should, it should help us down the line. Again, just on an ROI basis, return on investment. I think great things will come of mRNA eventually. And I hope it yeah. ceases being a political football. And I hope that the 
scientists get the funding that they need to do that fundamental research that doesn't have any downstream effects for two decades. Because when it does, it, it will be transformative. And I, 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 I understand the paradox because Americans want a pill for that. <laughs> That's just what Americans want. Sure. I want a pill for that. And there was no pill for this. And, and maybe there couldn't be a pill for that. That doesn't mean there can't be a pill for that. But it, we're not going to spin it up overnight. We're going to have to know a lot more than we do in order to get a pill for that. And yeah, and, and and I think mRNA is a great example of that. I mean, let, let's forget about let's forget about COVID. Uh, let's look at I mean, I don't know. Let's look at schizophrenia, right? Let, I mean, let's look at something completely different. So one of the things that was pointed out to me by uh, a geneticist I talked to is if you if you from his perspective, you look at the value of mRNA, and when people hear mRNA, they think COVID. They think you know I don't know for for letters or what I, I don't know what the hell people think of when they think of mRNA. But the what he thinks of is this idea of you're able to do two things. You're able to incorporate vital biological information and send it successively mm-hmm. into various parts of the human body, into the cells. And then you are able from that information to be able to tell the cell's own machinery to be able to manufacture or not manufacture different things. So make a protein or stop making a protein or do do something. And these are, of course, the things that genes do. So for him, he's saying, now we have a successfully demonstrated way of transmitting this information into all different parts of the human body that we weren't able to do before, or at least conceivably, right? In such a way that we can get in and we can adjust things. So now it gives us the opportunity, it gives us the hope that we might be able to send such instructions to parts of the body that were previously off limits, like the brain, for example. So this is, this is the idea of looking at it from a conceptual perspective of stepping back and saying, what does this technology actually enable us to do? What are the implications for the longer term? And once you start looking at it that way, it transcends not only political constraints, it transcends your immediate needs of getting a vaccine to do X or getting a vaccine to do that. I mean, as you surely know, mRNA ideas were in the air for 40 or 50 years. Um, and, And people had been imagining using that uh, using that conceptual framework to be able to develop vaccines for cancer and doing all sorts of uh, of other possible things. What was really uh, recognized and, and, and opened up everybody's eyes during the pandemic was the way people were able to ensure that that information was able to be successfully delivered. Uh, and in this case, successfully delivered to produce uh, an I- immunological response and so forth uh, towards, a, towards a virus. But but you can abstract from that and look at the ways that biological information can now be successfully delivered and encourage the individual cells to harness the, these vital proteins or what have you, or inhibit them or, or, or what have you. And the implications of that are just mind-blowing. Yeah, they I are. mean, they're just enormous. And we should at least be aware of that as citizens. So, so, so it's not just, I want a pill for this thing or, or, or what have you. It's, it's looking at a wide range, an enormously wide range of, of issues in human health, which now there is a clearly demonstrated potential path forwards to address. They are amazing. 
I, 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 I've read about them and they are transformative and we will see lots and lots of, if we continue to do this research, which I hope we will, uh, we, we can uh, look forward to great things, I think. And if yeah. COVID is a spur to more investment in things like this, because actually getting into the cell, which is what viruses do, and then using the cell's machinery, because a cell is a machine to make proteins. That's exactly. what it is. And if you can make the proteins you want, if you can tell it what proteins to make, that, 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 that's, that's a game changer. Yeah, that yeah. is a thing. If you can tell a large number of cells what proteins to make and what proteins not to make, exactly. that is really something that, uh, yeah, that's good. Well, anyway, that's a good note to close on. It's a positive note. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Howard Burton about his book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays. You'll be able to hear many of his conversations with the people that he talked to in the course of this project on the New Books Network, on the Ideas Roadshow. And I hope that you do so. Howard, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Marshall.